Thanks. If you have your Bibles and want to open them, or if you want to use the notes, uh, we're in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. We're not going to read the whole passage. I'm going to go through it sort of verse by verse, but you can be there. I want to thank Mark and Jeff, Jeff, for preaching last week and leading us through Peter's denial and just helping us, reminding us that, you know, as, as we fall, as we deny Christ in different ways in our life, that he's there, he's waiting to restore us. So, so appreciated that. And for Mark, for setting up the, the trials of, of Jesus, which we're in the midst of, we're in the heart of the six trials of Jesus. Today we come to the fourth trial, Jesus' first appearance before Pontius Pilate. Before we get to the trial, I have a question. A question that probably every Christian, you know, Christian means little Christ, follower of Christ. Every Christian should be able to answer. And this question sort of will tie our passage, you know, as we move towards Easter, and it'll even reflect back uh, to Christmas, to the incarnation. And the question is this, why was Jesus born? Why was Jesus born? Feel free to shout out any response that's appropriate. To save mankind. Excellent answer. Any other thoughts? What was that? To, to, to tell us the truth about the, our Father in heaven. That's good. Thanks, Liam, for jumping to the answer for today. Any other any other? Correct, Aunt. I mean, I mean, really, uh, a number of years ago, I did a, a number of years, I don't know, two, three years ago, I did a series of messages on why Christ came. And there were really four main things. One was to obey the Father who had sent him. One was to serve. I come not to be a servant, not to be served, but to be a servant. And one was, as, as Brian said, to, to bring salvation, to redeem mankind, to provide that salvation. And then what Liam had shared and really what we're going to focus in on today to, to bring the truth, to reveal the truth of who the Father is, of God's plan for salvation. So many things Christ came to reveal and specifically in John 18, 37, we're jumping ahead. This is sort of going to be our, our focus verse for today. John 18, 37, then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? This, this passage here, as I read it, and we'll come to several things, I really wish I could have the tone, the intonations. How's Pilate, so you're a king, so you're a king, so you're a king. You know, I don't have any idea. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Truth matters. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. In Jesus's fourth trial, we see one of the most famous confrontations in all of history. People all over the world, not, not even in the Christian world, know of this confrontation, the confrontation between Jesus Christ, the Jew, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman. And at the heart of their confrontation is the truth. Jesus says that he has come to bear witness to the truth, and in response, Pilate will ask the question that is echoed down through history. 
what is truth. In verse 37 and 38, this confrontation over truth reaches its pinnacle. But before we get to the pinnacle, we have to climb the mountain. So let's begin by setting the scene, backing up to verse 28. During the night, Jesus had been betrayed and arrested. We saw that two weeks ago. He had went through his first trial before Annas. He actually had went through all three trials before the Jewish religious leaders, before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. John only speaks really of, of the first trial. It's now Friday morning, 6, 7 a.m. in the morning. We come to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The truth is, the Jews wanted Jesus executed. That was their purpose. But they had to seek permission from Rome. Yes, they could pass their own judgments, they could make judgments, but the Romans had the last word in matters of capital punishment, the death penalty. And Pilate was the Roman governor. He would have to sign off on Jesus' execution. John tells us that the Jews did not enter into the governor's headquarters. During the Passover, they were forbidden to touch anything that was Gentile. It would give them cooties, I guess, I don't know. And this would disqualify them from eating the Passover meal. Very important for them. Highlight of their year, of their calendar, the Passover meal, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. I wish we could stay there for a little bit. And the irony of the, the deliverer before them and them bringing him to be executed as they want to celebrate their deliverance. So Pilate, I'm sure begrudgingly went out to meet them, probably in the courtyard there of the, the governor's headquarters, the governor's palace. So the scene of the confrontation is set. Friday morning, Pilate's courtyard. On the one side, you have the Jewish leaders. On the other side, you have the Roman governor. And in the middle, we have Jesus Christ. The Jews are seeking to have him executed. But Pilate is seeking the truth, maybe. Note in your notes and on the screen here, truth is sort of italicized. Pilate isn't seeking absolute truth. He wants the truth that will allow him to keep this situation under control. He's in charge of keeping the peace in Jerusalem, in Judea. The Romans have sent him there, and he's probably not happy about it. Judea was not the the high point in the career path of the Roman officials. It was sort of backwater. So he's in charge of keeping the peace, and any, any, any trouble that came about would reflect poorly on him. His administration wouldn't want to do that. So Pilate, first point there, wants truth from the Jews. He asks in verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? What are the charges? What, what are you doing here? Let's get at the truth so I can get this over with, so I can avoid any trouble. And this seems to catch the Jewish leaders off guard. Verse 30, they answered him, Is this man, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. It seems they expected Pilate just to say, oh, 
oh, you guys are here, you want this, okay, rubber stamp, go ahead, put him to death. But instead, he, he opens up a, a hearing, a trial. He wants to get at the truth. Maybe he had heard of Jesus' popularity. Maybe he was worried. He didn't really want to execute Jesus because it could cause the very trouble he was seeking to avoid, the riots, the masses. Not a week before, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. Pilate wasn't sure about this. And this doesn't make the Jewish leaders happy. They said, look, governor, we're the Supreme Court of Israel. Don't you think this is serious? We wouldn't bring this to you on, on Passover, or 6 o'clock in the morning, if this wasn't a big deal. Can you just go with it? Can you just condemn Jesus? Let us get on with this? So seeking to, I think, seeking to avoid responsibility, seeking to have it reflect poorly on him, Pilate said to them, verse 31, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. If the Jews wanted the death penalty, they were going to have to make a case. They were going to have to give the truth. But there's something else going on here. I just want, John, John makes that clear. There's a deeper significance to this exchange between Pilate and the Jews. There's a, a deeper truth. It's our second point. John lets us in on what the, what's really happening, sort of behind the scenes, what God is doing. Verse 32, this was all to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The Jews are pressing for the Romans to crucify him. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus had predicted his death. He had told his disciples that, that the Gentiles would be involved. Mark 10, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is before all of this took place, obviously. Jesus knew. He had said, he had predicted, he had prophesied that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. Jesus had also predicted on a number of places the manner of his death. John 12, 32, 33, just an example. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If the Jews had killed Christ instead of the Romans, which there was a possibility of that. We see this in Scripture, right? We see this in Stephen later in the book of Acts. They do go ahead and stone Stephen. So even though the Romans had that right, sometimes the Jews would just ignore that and go ahead and do their own stoning. They brought that the woman caught in adultery and they wanted Jesus to lead the, the stoning party on her. There's something else going on here. They could have taken him and stoned him. They would have had to deal with Rome, but they could have made it through. Apparently, God wanted both the Jews and the Gentiles involved in Christ's death. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles, right? And they both would play a part in the killing, the execution of the Son of God. Jesus would die for the sins of all of mankind, and all of mankind would be represented 
by those who would execute him. And it seems that God didn't want Jesus to be stoned. Like I said, he could have. The Jews could have just done that. The Jews weren't supposed to carry out capital punishment, but sometimes they did. A few years ago, I saw a movie called The Stoning of Sariah M. Have you seen that? It was uh, quite graphic. In the movie, Sariah M. was stoned. Thus the title, The Stoning of Sariah M. She was buried up to her waist, and the people in the village just hurled rocks at her, hitting her, striking her, until she was dead. It was gruesome, and it was difficult to watch. But it doesn't come close to what took place on the cross, a la another movie that maybe some of you have seen, The Passion of the Christ and others. Stoning is awful, but not nearly as awful as the humbling of crucifixion. The Romans had perfected this humiliating, terrifying way of death. We'll talk more about that in weeks to come as Jesus is crucified. God wanted his son, Jesus Christ, to die this most horrible of deaths, to be lifted up for all to see. God wanted all people throughout all generations to see the pain and the horror that Christ went through for us, for them, for you and I. He wanted to see in graphic detail the wrath of God falling upon his own son. He wanted us to know the curse that came upon Christ as he hung on that tree. Paul understood this, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. The curse, the humiliation, being there before everyone. For Jesus to hang on a tree for your sins and mine, the Jews and the Romans had to work together. And if you don't know, they really didn't like each other. So the deeper truth behind the events that are going on is that God was in control. God was seeing to it that his will would be done in the crucifixion. Between verses 32 and 33 of of John chapter 18, there's a a little gap where John doesn't record what happens, and we need to know that as, as we move forward. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that when Jesus... When the Jews saw that Pilate wasn't going, didn't want to condemn Jesus to death, go ahead and judge him yourself, take him away from me, I don't want to deal with this, they began hurling accusations at Jesus. Luke 23.2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. It was that final accusation that got Pilate's attention, saying that he himself was Christ, was a king. In Pilate's world, there's only one king, and that king is not some uh, Jew. That king is Caesar. Having some Jewish rabbi claiming to be king would not go over well. It could cause trouble. It could cause riots. It could cause problems. It could reflect, reflect poorly on his governing system, his style, So Pilate can't let it go. So now Pilate wants the truth from Jesus. That's our third point. John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so he brings Jesus in, are you the king of the Jews? It seems to be a a more private 
conversation. Pilate wanted to know if Jesus was that political threat. The Greek text literally says, you, are you the king of the Jews? It's that double emphatic. Jesus couldn't answer Pilate's question with an unqualified yes or no without defining exactly what Pilate was thinking when he said, are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus asked Pilate a a clarifying question. Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this about me? Jesus' question was intended to clarify the issue. If Pilate was saying this on his own initiative, if this was coming from Pilate, he would be asking if Jesus was the king in the political sense. Was he seeking office? Was he seeking followers in this world? And Jesus' answer in that case would have been no. He was not a king in the sense of a a military or political leader. But if Pilate was referring to the fact that Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, that Jesus was the true king of kings and lord of lords, that he was the true king of Israel, he couldn't deny that accusation. So Pilate answers in verse 35, I am, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? The tone there is probably clear. Am I a dog? That's how the, the Romans viewed the Jews. Your own nation and your chief priest has delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate was just repeating the charge already stated by the Jewish leaders. It's them who's accusing you of this. The accusation was theirs, not Rome's. So he finally asks, what have you done? Why are they doing this? Since it was now clear, I think in Jesus' mind, that Pilate was merely repeating the charge, the charge levied by the Jewish leaders, Jesus answered his question, clarifying in Pilate's mind even what it meant to be, what Jesus meant by being a king. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus admitted, yes, I'm a king, but not a political ruler intent intent on challenging Romans' rule. I'm no threat to you. No earthly king would allow himself to just be taken and delivered. We saw that two weeks ago in the garden. You know, when is 11 brave disciples, at least one of them, tried to lop off this guy's head and got an ear. Jesus said, no, you know, that's not what we're about. He healed the man. Jesus' kingdom does not come from human effort. His kingdom is spiritual and comes through his conquering of sin in the lives of those who belong to his kingdom. Yes, Jesus was and is a king, but his kingdom will not not rise through force, through fighting, through rebellion. He was clearly no threat to Rome's interest. And therefore, the Jews charged that he was some kind of revolutionary bent on disturbing everything that was going on, breaking the peace that existed between Rome and Israel. This was absurd. Now we come to verse 37 and 38. This is the pinnacle of the confrontation between Jesus, the truth, and Pilate. Pilate is confronted by truth. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, 
And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Yes, I am a king, but not an earthly king. My kingdom is spiritual, and I've come to bear witness to the truth of my kingdom. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Can you hear it? Jesus is getting personal. He's moving into Pilate's space. Pilate, I think you might think you're trying to get at the truth here. But the truth is found in me. Are you listening? Are we listening? I want to spend just a little, a little time here in verse 37, camp here for a little bit. And I want to consider two implications. Two implications about truth. Two implications that I believe have special significance to us. And by us, I mean us, you and I. Because we live in this postmodern generation. We live in this relativistic 21st century Western world. The first implication may seem obvious, but we need to get hold of it. We need to believe it. And that is, there is truth. There is truth. What I mean by that is there is truth that is truth for everyone. There's truth that everyone should believe. There's absolute truth. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, the truth. The world doesn't make this truth. It doesn't shape or change the truth. It's the truth. Not a truth for me and a different truth for you, but the truth for all, unchanging and absolute. Now this might seem obvious to some, but it's no, no longer obvious to many in our world. In the past, we may have been able to just skip over this point. Okay, there's truth. Everybody gets that. We're all on the same page. We all have the same worldview about truth. There may have been a time when we didn't need to proclaim just the fact that there is a truth as part of the Christian message as we lead into what that truth is. We, we, in the past, we may not have had to could skip the step of convincing people that, yes, there is truth, absolute truth, but that is not today. Many of you will remember the Truth Project. How many, how many went through the Truth Project with, we did a number of years ago? I dug out my old DVDs and, and found a little video clip. So with a little nostalgia, I'd like us to view this video clip from the Truth Project. What is truth? Truth is... Truth is just, uh, when... I don't know. That's a really hard question. What, what is, is truth? Truth. Truth is really... Hard to define because... A lot of different people have... Different... Set of beliefs. Present moment is truth, I think. What is truth? Truth will set you free. I truly believe there's a difference between fact and truth. Truth is very hard to give a definition to, I think. Truth is what kind of guides you. The lack of guilt is truth. Truth, I like to think of as, imagine a cathedral of the world, and there are windows, lots of windows in this cathedral, and truth with a capital T 
shines through the windows. Someone asks you something, you just have to tell them the truth. People expect people to tell the truth. I think truth is a belief system. Fact is concrete, like there's a brown table here. But if you want to believe it's blue, then that's your truth, that's your reality. Truth is what really happened. Truth is honesty, is truth. Everybody sees things in different ways, so one person's memory can be different from another person's memory and what happened. There are people out there who say there is no truth. You can just create your own truth. I define truth as the way the Bible has given us instruction to live. And then we humans are inside and we're looking at this truth shining through all these windows. We're seeing the refraction, the reflection, we're looking at it out of our own eyes and heart, and we're, we understand it in a way that makes sense for us. In a philosophical sense or a factual sense, if you're talking philosophy, different people with different value systems may have different what they see as truth. Uh, if you look at truth as fact, then you have historical facts you can verify, you have scientific facts. So therefore, I might interpret truth through the lens of Christianity. I might interpret truth through the lens of science. I tend toward more of the empirical truth of, of facts. Something is true when uh, it's untainted. You're talking on the materialistic level. Uh, truth is two and two. two is four. There's no way around it. If you're talking on the spiritual level, which is a much higher realm, you're talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. All religions believe that what they believe is the law of the universe. I have a bit of the truth, you have a bit of the truth, each of us does. Truth is always with us. Truth is just believing in somebody or not. There has to be a fixed truth, in my opinion, for the universe to function properly. What is truth? It's a relative. So today, in our world, the truth, the simple truth, that there is truth, or what is truth, has become fairly controversial. If you try to claim today that there's absolute truth, especially if you say you have it, truth that everyone should believe and follow, you'll very likely be considered misguided and immoral. People will say you're misguided because there's no basis for this absolute truth. There's no ultimate authority. There's no God. Or if even there is a God, there's no way of knowing him. There's no way of knowing him. There's no way of knowing what he thinks. One person's idea might be just as good as another person's idea. But not only are you considered misguided, you're considered by many to be immoral if you insist on absolute truth. Why? Because to cl claim that there's absolute truth leads to intolerance and prejudice against what others think. If there's truth, then there must be false. If there's right, there must be wrong. Morality today has been virtually defined in terms of relativism. If you don't believe that your truth, even though you believe your truth is truth for you, but if you don't believe that your truth is true for me, then you're seen as humble and good and moral. But if you do believe that your truth is true for you and it's true for me, 
me and you, I don't know if I had that right. You're arrogant and intolerant and immoral. For many, virtue or morality today demands relativism. John Piper said this, Truth that seem, is seen as the rotten root of bigotry and intolerance and prejudice. But relativism, on the other hand, is seen as the wholesome mother of cultural respect and tolerance and peace. We as Christians need to understand how deeply this view has impacted our culture. Remember the video. So many different views and ways of thinking about truth. It's relativity. We can't escape from its influences, but we can defend against it. We can defend against it as it seeks to take up residence in our own heart, as it seeks to become part of us, and we can defend against it as we encounter it in our culture. Ultimately, relativism will not stand, really for two reasons. First, because it's, it's not biblical. Jesus said there is a truth. In fact, in John 14, 6, he said that he is the truth. And to be sure, God's word will outlast relativism. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away, Jesus said in Matthew. But relativism is not only unbiblical, it's self-contradictory. If someone says there's no absolute truth that everyone should believe, they contradict themselves. Because they make a statement that they want people to believe is true. But the statement they make is that, they are, that there are no statements that everyone should believe. Get it? The flaw in relativism is it seeks to be absolute truth. The hidden agenda of relativism is that it wants to relativize every other truth except the truth that all truth is relative. If you're a little confused, I'll not repeat that, but we can talk later. Therefore, when relativism is confronted, it cannot stand. It's self-contradictory. It's a testimony to the fact that we can't live without absolute truth. Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So the first implication is there is truth. Otherwise, Jesus would have nothing to bear witness of, right? Truth that comes from God. Truth that is outside our world and gives meaning to our world. Truth that comes to us. Truth, not truth that we create ourselves. Truth that is absolute and unchanging as God is absolute and unchanging. Truth that everyone should seek, everyone should submit to. So we know that there's truth, or I at least hope we do. Now the second implication of verse 37 answers the question of, uh, okay, there's truth, so where do I find it? Where is truth? Pilate will ask, what is truth? A valid question. But Jesus is answering the question, where is truth? Or who is truth? Jesus said, for this I was born, and for this I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Truth is found in Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He came to bear witness to the truth. Now, the question for us today is, Jesus came to bear witness, but he's not here anymore. Where is that witness? Where is our truth today? In the incarnation, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. But when he left the earth, 
Did his witness bearing cease? Was he done? No. It continued on. It continued on through his disciples. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I'm sending you, he says to his disciples, sending you to bear witness to the truth. So where can we still hear Jesus bear witness to the truth? Where is the truth? The answer is the word of God, specifically the four gospels. Jesus left us with witnesses. And the witnesses were faithful to record the truth. So to hear the truth, I think we need to sit down in a quiet place alone with the gospels. And you'll begin to to hear the testimony of these these four witnesses. And through them, you'll hear the testimony of Jesus as it comes through. Remember why John wrote his gospel? That you might believe and have life. That you might believe the testimony of Jesus Christ. That you might believe the truth that Jesus Christ came to bear witness of. And that you might have life through him. So take the gospels. Read them. Watch what Jesus does. Listen to what he says. Think about the attitudes that he shows and make a judgment whether these writers and this man had integrity and credibility or whether they are liars or just men who deceive themselves. I believe that the Holy Spirit-inspired Bible has the power to convince people that Jesus Christ's testimony is true. J.B. Phillips was translating the New Testament from Greek into modern English about 40 years ago. And afterward he said, there's, almost, there, there's an almost childlike candor and simplicity, and the total effect is tremendous. No man could ever have set down such artless and vulnerable accounts as these unless some real event lay behind them. Read the Gospels and hear the truth that Jesus came to bear witness to. The way you determine if a witness is truthful is by listening long and hard to to them. Listening to see if you sense that 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 the witness is trying to con you or is there a ring of truth there. That's what we have to do with the Gospels. And I believe God has given us that capacity to read, to understand, to hear and to know that what we're reading is the truth. That's what we must do to defend in our own hearts against the relativistic culture that keeps coming upon us. And that's what we must encourage any person you encounter who's truly seeking the truth to do, to seek it in the Word of God, to seek it in the Gospels, to seek it in the life of Jesus. I've told this story before, but it was, it's so poignant to me. Uh, our friend Lek in Thailand who, who heard some things about Christianity, who heard about God's unconditional love, who heard about heaven and 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 really liked it. It's a good, some good stuff. But then she said this. Leck happened to be a chemistry professor uh, at a local college. And so she said to this, this all sounds good, but is it true? Is it true? And Christine and I said, well, let's find out. And so for the next at least six months, we showed her Jesus in the New Testament, showed her the truth. And in about six months, and it took that long, she called us one evening and said, okay, 
I believe it's true now. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. It was the gospel. The truth, sorry. The truth is found in Jesus Christ and is revealed through his word. So Jesus makes it clear to all, including Pilate, there is truth. Truth that he came to bear witness to. Are you listening, Pilate, he says, and are we listening? Now we come to Pilate's response, our final point for this morning. Pilate's response to truth. And we're just going to take the beginning of verse 38. We'll look at the rest of 38 and, and on next week. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? We got the answers from, from our current culture, really fa fairly well represented, I think, our, our Western culture anyway, up there on the video. Pilate's response to Jesus seems to be, seems to be, again, this is where you really want that tone. You really wish that they could have recorded it. Uh, I wish I had the audio version of the Bible. But it seems to be, and especially when, we, when we'll see what happens later, seems to be a frustrated, cynical, even hopeless. What is truth? You know, what is truth? If Pilate had been listening earlier as we criticize relativism as being self-contradictory, I think he might have said, I'm not, in, I'm not included in your criticism. Because I don't say truth is relative, and I don't say truth is absolute. All I say is, I don't know what truth is. It may be relative, it may be absolute, I don't know. And so you can't accuse me of contradicting myself, because I just don't know. I wash my hands of truth, Pilate says. And that may be the way some of you are feeling this morning. You may be uncommitted to the truth that Jesus came to bear witness of, to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Not because you think it's untrue, but because you just don't know. You live in sort of a limbo. I have time. I can wait and see. You go to church sometimes because maybe it's true, but you're not willing to fully commit because if it's true, it, it requires a full committal. So I'm not just talking to some person out there that may, may be visiting or something that may say, no, I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm talking to us as believers. Because if it's true, then it, it requires a commitment. But you're unwilling to fully commit yourself to Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's not totally true. I haven't fully said it in my mind, and I'm not willing to go full force into it. Let me ask you a question to see if, if you're really being honest with yourself. Do you have a wait and see, a, a limbo sort of attitude on issues in your life that really matter? On issues where your personal interests are at stake? Or do you just wait and see in areas that seem unimportant to you? Maybe it's true, maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't really matter. I, I'm guessing no one's ever met a person who who was punched in the nose and had trouble understanding the truth of that situation. He immediately believes that the puncher is truly guilty. Last week, just a, a different sort of thing, last, last week I, was, I went to the bank and I came out of the bank and I have bank at service plus credit. No, I don't because they change. They keep, my credit unions keep selling themselves to other credit unions, and I forget who they are. Schools first credit union. 
down by in University Village. And so I'm parked there, and the parking spaces are really horrible, really tight. And so I go to my car, and I open the door, and I guess I open a little hard, but I'm, I'm there, I'm on it, I'm not, and it slipped out of my hand. Bam, right into the car next to me. And at that exact moment, the lady whose car that belonged to came, saw, she just, she was right there, she was walking from the bank as I smashed her car. And I said, oh no. And I closed the door and I said, I'm so sorry. And she goes, I, I can't remember what she said, it wasn't, I can't repeat it here. <laughs> But uh, I go, well, maybe it's just the paint. My car's white, hers was dark, and no, there's a dent there. And uh, she had no doubt that I was wrong. And she was right. There was some truth going on there. She had no uh, problem judging me, rightly so, and no problem using words that I wasn't used to, especially out of mouths of females. And so all I could do is say, I I'm so sorry, you know. Uh, there was truth there, though and she let me have it. She immediately understood that I was wrong in that situation. And if a judge said in that situation, not guilty, Cliff, you're not guilty, because truth is relative. And for, for him, for, for you, maybe it's a good thing to smash people's cars, to put dings in people's cars. We would say, anyone would say, that was a, that's a bad judge, not a good judge. The point is, Pilate may say, you may say, I don't know what truth is, and I don't think I can find out. I'm not sure if it even matters. But when it does matter, it matters, right? Truth matters when it is impacting your life. When your interests are at stake, you won't just stand back and say, oh, maybe I'm not thinking about this right. Maybe, maybe the truth is I should have, my car should be all dinged up. We have very strong convictions when our life and property are at stake, don't we? Strange how agnosticism and relativism are, are just blown away when our rights and our life are on the line. So this morning I just want to plead with us that you realize how much is at stake with the truth that Jesus brings, much more than a punch in the nose, much more than a ding in a car, things that were so clear on what the truth is. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Your life is on the line. You just don't get it. You're trying to postpone it. You're willing to live in limbo because it's not immediate. You can't be like Pilate, who seemed to be seeking some sort of truth, but in the end was indifferent and unwilling to listen to Jesus' voice. Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth, the unchanging, absolute truth of God. We need to realize how much is at stake. We need to take the gospel, read it, believe it, apply it, share it with others who are seeking the truth. We have the truth in our hands, brothers and sisters, and we have been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to give that truth to those, and I'm not saying to force it down anybody's throat. Look for people seeking the truth. They're out there and give it to them. For then and only then will, will they know the truth and then and only then will you begin to experience the truth. And I, I just love and have to end with Jesus' words because it's so true. The truth will set us free.
as we seek to apply the truth, understand the truth, live the truth found here in God's word, and as we seek to share that truth with the world around us. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you that you saw fit to send your son. Thank you that in the midst of this horrific situation, Jesus facing the cross, he's willing to still teach. He's still willing to to speak to this Roman governor about truth, to let him know that that he's the truth, to let him know if, if he was a true seeker that he could turn and say, Jesus, well, tell me about this truth instead of what is truth. Father, I pray that for each of us this morning, that we would realize that you came to bear witness to the truth, that there is truth and that truth can be found in you, that we would commit ourselves to learning more and more of what that truth is, how it applies to our lives, and we would commit to sharing that truth with the people in our lives. Do that for us. I plead with you in in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.